Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Lord wants to speak to you this morning and things that he's been speaking to me. I'm just continuing along the lines of talking about wisdom. This is already the third message that we've had concerning this. And the title of today's message is Wisdom is Better Than Weapons of War. But, and the but is the important part of the title. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but. And I want to begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And I'm going to read beginning with verse 18, and then we're going to continue into chapter 10. And we're just going to take it a little piece at a time, and I'm just going to give you a little short thing about each, not each verse, but each section. So verse 18 of chapter 9 in Ecclesiastes, it says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war. And there's a pretext to that that we'll look at in a few minutes. But one sinner destroys much good. And it can be understood as one failure, one great sin can destroy much good that's been in a person's life. And that but is very important to the message that God has for us this morning. Then look at chapter 10, verse 1. These are just some little wisdom blurbs. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. So, so far we've heard that one sinner can destroy much good, even though wisdom is, is better than, than weapons of war. And now we've read that foolishness actually weighs more than wisdom and honor. As light as it may be, but the, the, the weight of one little dead fly in a perfumer's ointment that he's making is heavy enough to destroy the weight of all the wisdom and the honor that are in there. And we have many modern proverbs to say these kinds of things. Now look at verse 4, uh, verses 2 through, through, and reading on down through 4. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Even when the fool walks along the road, so in other words, even if the fool does end up on the right road, his sense is lacking and he demonstrates, or literally he tells everyone by his actions, that he is a fool, even when he is, happens to be walking on the right road. If the ruler's temper rises against you, listen to this, do not abandon your position, because composure allays great offenses. Or it's akin to the phrase in Proverbs that a gentle word will turn away the wrath of a king when you remain composed. Verse 5, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. It's like an arrow which goes forth from the ruler. How many know the evil that happens when the rulers give forth uh, erroneous messages and, and commit great errors in a society? And here's, here is the evil. Folly is set in many exalted places. It can be all the way in the White House. While rich man, men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses 
and princes walking like slaves on the land. So we see here that we cannot determine a person's wisdom based upon his stature in life or based upon his wealth, and yet that is what people tend to do. Because slaves ride horses oftentimes, while princes walk along the path. Now look at verse 8. We're going to be putting all this together in just a few minutes. In verse 8 it says, He who digs a pit may fall into it. Okay, now digging a pit, uh, each one of these things we're going to look at here can have a military application. It can be, you know, digging a foxhole, and because the whole context is how wisdom is better than weapons of war. But a person who digs a pit, it may be that he falls into that pit. It could be a trap set for another person, and then he falls into it. It could be a pit for his own protection, and then he falls, and, and he's injured in that pit or destroyed in that pit. And then it says, a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. Well, most people here in northern Nevada knows that a black widow may get you if you break through a wall. And before you pick up rocks or take apart a wall or do any kind of work, you kind of want to be looking around. Is there a rattlesnake in there? Is there a black widow? Is there something else? Something might be hiding in there. You don't just go on in and do your work without checking it out. And then he says, he who quarries stones may be hurt by them. Well, he who gathers apples from an apple tree may get hit on the head by apples. It happened to me and it happened to Frank. So when you're quarrying stones, you may get injured by them. And here's one that everybody here knows about. Everybody that's ever been camping. It says, he who splits logs or who has a wood-burning stove at home may be endangered by them. You know, splitting logs is dangerous work. You have to be careful. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. And wisdom has the advantage of giving success. So we see in these verses that wisdom sharpens our axe. And wisdom always looks before it leaps. Wisdom does not work with a dull axe. Wisdom understands that a dull axe or a dull knife is more dangerous than a sharp axe or a sharp knife. And so wisdom keeps its axe, keeps its knife sharpened. I hope you can already understand we're not talking about principles of how to run your kitchen or do stuff in your backyard. We're talking about spiritual things here, okay? And we're going to see that in a minute. Now look with me at verse 11. We'll keep reading. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? So here's, I need to explain verse 11 to you just for a minute, because we don't really charm snakes that much anymore, do we? But most of us have probably you know, seen a, a movie, Indiana Jones or something, or a cartoon, or read a, a, a book of fairy tales, and you've got this picture of a cobra coming up out of a basket with somebody, a charmer, playing a little flute there and charming the snake, okay? So what this is actually talking about is something that not everybody would have been completely familiar with either in Israel when it was written, but everybody would have understood that if there is a charmer and he charms a snake, so that snake can be charmed for various reasons. It can be charmed for him to make money off of people, right? 
It can be charmed so that he uses it to attack an enemy, for an enemy to be killed by the venom of the snake. And there are many famous people, including Cleopatra and people like that, were, that were killed and committed suicide even by the venom of snakes in the ancient world. But what he says here is if the snake just starts biting willy-nilly everybody that comes along or bites the charmer himself before he's charmed, then there's no profit for it in the charmer. First, he has to charm the snake. So wisdom understands that charm, listen carefully, that charm comes before venom. The fool multiplies his words. And he talks about things that he has no idea of what he's even talking about. And he talks about what's going to come and what's going to happen when he absolutely doesn't know what's going to come and what's going to happen. And why does he multiply his words? Because he wants to charm the snake. You see, foolishness thinks that if it's dangerous, you'll know it right off the, right, right, you know, right off the bat, right from the beginning. But wisdom understands that where there is flattery, where there are flattering words, where there are charms, what's going to come next eventually down the road is venom. Okay, And wisdom does not trust in the flattery of men or in the multiplication of the words of many people. Now look at verse 15. It's the last one we'll look at here. It says, The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. We're going to be talking about that some more, but basically what it says is this. Fools spend so much time and energy packing their bags that they never even get to their destination. They're late to the plane. They're late to the train. They spent so much time in preparation that they never got to the destination. I don't know, have you ever heard this little saying that pops up all the time and has been for the last 20 or 30 years about how it's all about the journey, it's not about the destination? Now, I don't know if... I don't mean to offend anybody, but the first time I started hearing that thing, I started thinking from the very beginning, that is just utterly stupid. <laughs> it's not about the journey. I mean, I get what they're trying to say, have fun along the way, enjoy every day of your life, and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But if you go on a journey and have a blast on the journey, but never get to where you're supposed to be going in the beginning, then it wasn't about the journey, was it? The journey was a complete failure. The point of a journey is to reach a specific destination. And God has a destination. He has a destiny for each one of us. And if we pray for the school kids today, if it's going to be all about the journey, I'm just going to have a blast in school. I don't care about the grades I make. I don't care about what happens next. I just want to have fun. You know, everybody wants to have fun. But you're, gonna, you're going to reap the bitter fruit of that someday because you didn't reach the destination, which is to do your best to learn something, to become the person that God's created you to be. And so it's not about the journey, it's about the destination. But for a fool, it's always about the journey, and it's never about the destination. Now go back with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 again. And I want to read beginning in verse 11, and this is where we left off last week. Okay, And we're going to talk about how wisdom is better than weapons of war, but... So in verse 11, just from the very end of the verse, it says, time and chance overtake them all. Now, I talked about this last week, and I kind of felt like some people were like, why are you talking about chance and about luck and things like that? I really didn't use the word luck, but I was talking about chance and how time and chance, wisdom knows time and chance. And a lot of people want 
to pretend like they're very great in faith and say that nothing happens by chance. But the Bible actually doesn't say that. Chance is, is, is real. Things happen by chance. You don't know what's going to happen sometimes. Sometimes things just happen, right? But what we do know from the Scripture is that God is the master over chance. It even tells us in Proverbs that when you roll the dice, God determines the outcome of the dice even. You know, that God is never dependent upon luck or upon chance. But chance is, a, is something that's in our life from our point of view because we don't understand everything that's going on. So when we trust in God and we have wisdom, we are prepared for things that might happen. Okay? Most of you wear a seatbelt, I think. And not just because you might get a ticket. Okay? Every one of you that's driving around, you better have liability insurance at least, Right? And the whole thing is about being prepared for chance. And nobody says, oh, that's a lack of faith to have liability insurance. Because you have to have liability insurance. So wisdom is prepared for things that can happen. Well, we're going to talk about a guy today, and I'm just going to give you the verses to read so we don't have to spend a lot of time reading them all. And his name is Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was a great king. I'll talk about him in just a few minutes. But just as an example of chance that happens in the life of people, Jehoshaphat made a covenant with a very wicked king by the name of Ahab. And he went out to war together with Ahab. And he almost got killed because of his foolishness. Okay? But he didn't because he, he knew how to whine. And W-H-I-N-E. Sometimes that's an important skill in life. Not very often, but sometimes it works. And when they thought he was King Ahab, they came to kill him. And he said, I'm not King Ahab. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. And they actually listened to him and didn't hurt him. Because he realized, I got into a mess by my foolishness, by making a covenant with Ahab. Well, Ahab thought he was going to get away in that story. But Ahab ends up dying in that story because one of the archers shot an arrow into the air. It came right down. He knew not where. Just by chance, he shot an arrow, and by chance, the arrow pierced through the armor of King Ahab, and Ahab ends up dying exactly like Elijah had prophesied. That's not chance from God's side. Okay, There is no chance from God's side. But it was definitely chance from Ahab and Jehoshaphat's side. They didn't know that that was going to happen. So wisdom is prepared by trusting in God and walking according to the will and the wisdom that God gives through the Bible, through his word. So look at me at verse 13 now, or verse 12. Moreover, man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Also, also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. Now listen to this story. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. And where it says he delivered the city by his wisdom, it literally says and could be interpreted as he could have delivered the city by his wisdom, or should have delivered that city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man, or it could mean no one listened to that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness 
are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. But what's implied here is, but nobody listens to the words of the wise. Because the words of the wise are spoken in quietness. You know, when God came to Elijah, and finally Elijah realized this is God speaking to him, it wasn't in the earthquake and it wasn't in the storm, was it? It was in this still, small voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit on the inside of Elijah. The words of wisdom are spoken in quietness. But the rulers among fools, they shout their orders everywhere. We have a lot of shouting going on in the world today. We pray for our young people today. One of the greatest things to pray for our young people is that they would learn to listen to the Holy Spirit because they have more of a challenge doing that today than any of us ever did in any other generation because they are surrounded with noise. There's so much shouting going on around, but God's word comes in quietness. So Solomon speaks here in the wisdom that God gave him, and by the Holy Spirit, this is the scripture we're reading, that he knew of a city, and that he knew that this city, when it was besieged by a great king, and if you don't know what it means to be besieged, in case some of the kids haven't heard that word yet, that's when you're inside of a city, and you've got all the doors locked. Nobody can get in, nobody can get out. And outside is this huge army, and they've got you completely surrounded, okay? And uh, so eventually you get hungry because they can't get any food in either. Eventually you get thirsty and eventually you give up and they just keep you sieged in that city. So he knew of a city and everybody could have been saved in that city if they had listened to the wise man that was in the city. But because the wise man was poor, remember that princes, they walk while uh, slaves ride on horses. The wise man was poor. He's walking around town barefooted. He probably doesn't have a whole lot of money. And nobody's going to listen to him because he doesn't look like a wise man. But he had wisdom. And they didn't listen to his wisdom because he didn't have enough money to impress them with that wisdom. And he was a prince, but they thought him to be a fool and did not listen to him. So the city was not saved. Now once, in the days of his father David... There was a city which was saved, okay? And this is in 2 Samuel chapter 20. Now, I was going to read this whole story out to you, but I'm just going to have to give it to you as homework because of time, okay? But you've got to read this story. Everyone I'm going to give to you, just, even if you know it, you've heard it a hundred times, go read it again. In 2 Samuel chapter 20, okay? 2 Samuel chapter 20, beginning with verse 1 through 22. There was a city, and in this city there was a man who was an enemy of David's. And David knew that this man, Shammai, would be worse than, uh, than Absalom had been. That Shammai was able to turn many people against David, and he was trying to destroy the kingdom of David. And so David said, you've got to stop Shammai. And he sends out, remember he has a, 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 a captain over all of his army named Joel. And uh, uh, Joab uh, goes out, to fight against Shammai. But the story is a little bit complicated. The only part I want to tell you right now, you can read it later, is that Joab is just indignant with fury. Joab is crazy mad, okay? He's so mad that he kills one of the other captains that David has appointed, one of the guys on his own team. He murders him because he doesn't want to share the glory of getting Shammai with anybody else, okay? 
Joab wants Shammai, and he's going to kill him. And Joab is crazy, and Joab has power, and Joab has an army to do it. And this Shammai guy, he runs into a city, and he hides in there. So Joab brings up his entire army around this city. And there's one woman in the city who goes over to the ramparts, and she, she, she yells out, she calls out, somebody call Joab over here so he can listen to me. And the weird thing in the story is the people actually listen to her. And they call Joab over. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But somebody has to call and somebody has to listen. So she calls to Joab. And Joab comes and he actually listens to her. And she says, why do you want to destroy a mother in Israel? Why do you want to kill me? Why do you want to destroy this city? This is a good Israelite city. We've always been faithful to the Lord. And Joab says, I did not come here to destroy the Lord's inheritance, but you've got one man in there that I came here to get, and his name's Shammai. And she says, in her wisdom, it says, in her wisdom, she says, before this day is over, I will we will cast the head of Shammai over the walls to you. And she, then she goes to the people. This lady you know, that's not a very high station back then. Don't want to offend any ladies, but this is just some poor lady in the city. But she has wisdom. And she goes to the people and she says, you know what, we've got to chop that guy's head off. And we've got to throw it over the wall and then Joab will go away. And these people listen to her and they chop the guy's head off. And they toss the head over the wall. Joab catches the head, basically. <laughs> Doesn't really catch it, but he you know, gets the head. And, yep, that's Shammai. Okay, bye. And he leaves. And he doesn't, the city is not destroyed because they listen to the wisdom of this one woman. Somebody has to call on the name of the Lord, and somebody else has to listen. Wisdom is all about calling on the name of the Lord and listening to what God is saying. Then we have a story in Joshua chapter 7, which I'm not, also not going to read, but read the whole chapter of Joshua chapter 7. It's a story about a little town by the name of Ai. It's two letters, A and I. And this guy named Achan, A-C-H-A-N, who's one of the Israelites. And Israel is under the command of Joshua. And you know that they've totally taken the city of Jericho. The walls came down. God did these miracles. He dried up the river Jordan for them to cross over before they took Jericho. And they've had success in every single battle that they've come to. And now they come to the city of Ai. And Joshua says to his spies, I want you to go into Ai. I want you to spy it out. I want you to see what it's like. The spies go there and the spies come back. And when they get back, they say, oh man, this is a piece of cake. Never say piece of cake. And he said, this is a piece of cake. We don't need more than two or 3,000 men to take Ai. And Joshua's like, well, good. Let's take a holiday and send 3,000 guys. So 3,000 guys go to Ai. And when they get there, the people of Ai rout this army. Okay? They kill 24 out of 3,000. 24 out of 3,000. But fear is, stri is stricken into the hearts of the Israelites. And they turn tail and they run away from the men of Ai. And when they get back, Joshua goes into this deep, dark depression. And Joshua starts whining. This is an example when whining doesn't work. He starts whining before God and he's saying, why did you ever take us out of Egypt? Why didn't you leave us in the wilderness? Why is this happening to me? Has anybody ever been there? Because I've been there. I'm not making fun of Joshua. This is human life. 
This is where we are. And he's saying to God, I don't understand how you could give me so many victory after victory after victory, and now everything is falling apart in the face of this little tiny enemy, in the face of this little disease or this little attack against my family. Everything. I stand to lose everything now. And I've trusted you all these years. And God says to Joshua, quit whining. He says, you have broken my covenant with you, and so my protection has been lost. And Joshua was like, what do you mean we've broken this covenant? Well, there was a guy named Achan, and Joshua doesn't know who it is yet. God will reveal it, and Achan will actually confess his sin. Okay? He ends up getting put to death together with his entire family for what they did, but maybe Achan's in heaven today. I, I don't know, but he does confess his sin. But Achan went out to war, okay? And when he goes out to war in one of the other cities, he sees 50 shekels, a, a bar of gold that weighs 50 shekels, okay? And then that's about one pound, a one-pound bar of gold. Would that make you rich today? Well, you could buy a new car with it, probably, almost. If you could get somebody to give you cash for it, you could get a pretty decent car with it, okay? So he's, but it only weighs one pound, okay? Then he's got a 200 shekels of silver, okay? And then there's a garment that was made in Shinar in Babylonia. And, you know, it's a mantle. But, you know, this, it, you know garments don't go for a lot of money today because we wear junk these days for the most part. And, uh, you know, but there are still expensive clothes out there, right? But this was something very expensive. So let's say that he had the equivalent of about $50,000 there. And yet this $50,000 could fit in a little package like this that weighed about five pounds. That's a pretty sweet deal when you can get a lot of money in a little package because you can hide it, right? And nobody's going to find out about it. And so he sneaks that away and he takes it home and he digs a hole under his tent and he buries it in that hole. And nobody knows about it except God. And don't you know that when Achan's doing this, he's saying the same thing that you and I say. He's saying everybody's doing it. Why shouldn't I get my piece of the pie? Everybody else is. Fact is, nobody else was doing it. But he's being convinced by this lie from Satan that it's okay to do it. And under normal circumstances, yes, this is okay. What do I mean? Well, there are laws to war. And the big law of war is to the victor goes the spoils. And when you capture a city, you spoil that city. You take the spoils of that city. Everybody else did do that. But God told them, you're not going to do that. I put all of this stuff under the ban, and I will not allow any of this stuff to be in my camp because I don't want you to take upon yourself the same curses that came on the Canaanites. I want to give you a fresh start. I want you to be born again. I want there to be something new in your life. And Achan makes a deal, so to speak, with the devil, but he really makes that deal with his own lust. And he convinces himself that this is going to be okay. Read chapter 7, you'll see. He admits it. He convinced himself that this is going to be okay, but it wasn't okay with God. Because he made a covenant with his own lust. Do you know that Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look on a woman to lust. It requires a covenant with God to walk in the plan of God for your life. This is a covenant meal. When we make a covenant with God, then... We receive the things that God gives us, but we reject the things of this world. I don't know what the, how this is applying to your life. I know some things God's been speaking to me about personally in my life. I think every single one of us probably, you know, 
have, have some things that, that God could reveal to us that might be hidden underneath a tent somewhere. And it doesn't have to be sins of commission. You know, there's two kinds of sins. There's sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are like what Achan did. He did something bad. Those are the ones we always focus on. Well, I ain't doing anything bad. I didn't hide any gold or silver under my tent. You know, I'm, I'm not looking at pornography. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. Whatever it may be that you're not doing. But then there's sins of omission, and it turns out in the Bible, those are the ones that people get in the most trouble for. When God tells you to do something and you're not doing it. You understand what I'm saying? When you're not being obedient to God. And wisdom, as we were talking about last week, uh, is the opposite of laziness. And wisdom works according to the plan and the purpose of God. So he hid, hid that under his tent. God revealed this to Joshua. And Joshua goes and he renews the covenant with God. But to renew the covenant, he has to remove those things that God put under the ban. Because... As we already read, a dead fly in the ointment, this little bit of foolishness weighed more than all the weapons of war that Israel had. And they brought everything to naught. Because without God, we have nothing. I mean, literally, we are doomed without God's help. And then there's one more story I want to tell you about. And I'm going to have you open up for the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings, in chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. And verse 41, it tells us about this guy named Jehoshaphat. And really pay attention to this story. We'll go through this quickly, but it says, Now Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, became king over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. So you've got Jehoshaphat in Judah, and you've got Ahab in Israel. And if you don't remember, Ahab is Jezebel's husband. And he is the absolute worst king of all the kings in Israel or in Judah. He's really, really bad. Okay? But he's also powerful. And he's wealthy. And he has a lot of things going for him on the outside. And then Jehoshaphat, he, he's a good king in Judah. You know, they had the good kings, the medium kings, the bad kings. He, he's one of the good kings in Judah. How many of you remember a story about Jehoshaphat and, the, and praise and worship? Does anybody remember this story? So what he's famous for, if you remember this story, is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, that he sent out the praise and worship team. He sent out the worshipers and the singers ahead of the army, and God delivered them in this great battle. He delivered the entire city of Jerusalem without them even having to raise a single weapon of war, because wisdom is greater than war. And when we worship God, he's enthroned upon our praises. And by the word of God, Jehoshaphat turned his heart to the Lord, and God worked a great miracle of deliverance through worship in his life. Okay? How many of you have ever heard that story now that I remind you of it? Okay, so that's in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and you can read that. So he's a great king. There's so many good things to tell about him. But there's a little bit of foolishness in his life. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but. So it says, Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhai. He walked in all the ways of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing right in the sight of the Lord. 
However, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. We won't hold that too hard against them because that was not something that very often got taken away. That was a really difficult thing to do, to get the people to actually have revival in their hearts. But there were the beginnings of revival here. And Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. Boom. That's the bad thing. Believe it or not, we'll see that's the really bad thing he did. He made peace with the king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might, which he showed and how he warred, and they are, not writ- are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Listen to this. The remnant of the Sodomites who remained in the days of his father Asa, he expelled from the land. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, there was this king named Rehoboam. He's the son of Solomon. And the kingdom was divided in his day because he was a foolish king. And he didn't listen to the wisdom of the elders. And Rehoboam did something really wicked. He brought, just like the Canaanites had had before them, he brought, we'll just call them male prostitutes into the temple of God. They're called here in the New American Standard, the Sodomites. And this was legalized and religionized homosexuality in the nation of of Judah and in Jerusalem. Okay? You know what Jehoshaphat did? He actually outlawed, uh, like we're saying today, he outlawed gay marriage or something. He outlawed homosexuality completely in the kingdom. I mean, things that most Christians say, oh, if we could just get this moral basis again and all this stuff. I mean, this is a really good king. And this was a huge risk for him. You need to understand that, just like it would be today. I mean, they, they, they could have assassinated him for this because this was a powerful cult of sodomites. It really was. But he was able to, 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 to get rid of them and remove them uh, out of the kingdom. And it says in verse 47, Now there was no king in Edom, a deputy was king. What that means is that Jehoshaphat ruled over his, his enemies. That his enemies, they submitted to him. They paid taxes to him. They listened to him. He, he had a good thing going. Okay, But look at verse 48. It's just a weird little story, but it tells us a lot. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish. That's a big navy. Okay, to go to, you don't see navies in Israel very much, to go to Ophir for gold. But they did not go for the ships were broken at Ezion Geber. And then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat was not willing, and Jehoshaphat slept with his father, was buried with his fathers in the city of the father of David, and Jehoram his son became king in his place. Okay. That's the, the basic story, as we read it in, in 1 Kings. So he made these ships, and he wants to send this navy out this, this, to, to, to go to Ophir. And he has the help of Tarshish, which is most likely in Spain. Okay? And the ships of Tarshish were famous in the ancient world. This was the best uh, shipbuilders in the world. And he's able to build these amazing ships. He's got the best ships that you could build, but wisdom is better than weapons of war, and wisdom is better than ships if you have wisdom. And Jehoshaphat, in this incident, lost his wisdom. And so even all of his great ships are destroyed, okay? He has the best ships in the world, but the best ships in the world mean nothing when God is intent on destroying what you're doing and stopping it because you've broken covenant with him. And so Jehoshaphat never gets to the gold. It wasn't because God didn't want him to have the gold. Solomon sent out ships of Tarshish and got gold from Ophir, and it worked wonderfully. (laughs) And he had lots of gold for the temple. 
And he was very powerful and very rich, but it did not work out for Jehoshaphat. And, and here's why. So, when he ruled over his enemies, he had made peace with the king of Israel. And let me just tell you the, the short story to this, okay? He, the king of Israel is Ahab, the worst guy that's possible. And Jehoshaphat makes a peace treaty with him, okay? And as a, as a, a part of this peace treaty, Ahab convinces him to go out to war. We already talked about this. You're going to ride in a chariot, and I'll go out in a chariot. But Ahab says to him, now, they want to kill me, so I'm going to put on a costume so they don't know I'm the king, okay? I'm just going to look like a regular soldier. But you go out with all of your royal robes on so that everybody knows what a beautiful and wonderful king you are. Boy, that's stupid. They want to kill the king, but Jehoshaphat likes that plan. It's a weird story. He listens to that. Why? Because it's flattering. It's the charming that comes before the venom. So Ahab's secret plan is to get Jehoshaphat killed in his place. And Jehoshaphat listens to him and goes out with his royal robes on. I already told you the story. By excessive whining, he gets out of it and doesn't die and barely gets back alive. And Ahab does die by chance, uh, as man would look at chance, but not as God. And the words of Elijah are vindicated because wisdom is vindicated by her children. But when he gets back, look with me at 2 Chronicles chapter 19. We'll do this real quick, but listen to what the prophet tells him. When he gets back from that ill-conceived alliance that he made with Ahab, in 2 Chronicles chapter 19, it's it, it, 2 Chronicles, I'm looking at first there. In 2 Chronicles chapter 19, and in verse 2, it says that Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, or a prophet, went out to meet him, and he, and he said to King Jehoshaphat, listen to the words, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? Should we ask ourselves this question sometimes? You know, David said, I hate those who hate thee. I'm not saying that. That's what David says. It's in the Psalms. The question the prophet asks him is why are you helping the wicked out? And why do you love people that hate the Lord? Because you've made a peace treaty with Ahab. Well, you don't understand, Mr. Prophet. I made this peace treaty so that our church would do better, so that everything would be great in Jerusalem, so everything would be wonderful. No, you made a peace treaty with the devil. You made a peace treaty with the absolute worst person you could make that treaty with. And he said, so you are helping the wicked and you love those who hate the Lord. Well, at this point, Jehoshaphat's ready to listen because he barely got off that field of battle alive. And he knows he made a mistake. And he says, so you bring wrath on yourself from the Lord. In verse 3, but there is some good in you. For you have removed the Asheroth from the land. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And you have set your heart to seek God. So he got to go back to Jerusalem and everything worked out okay. And then you have this amazing story of how God delivers them through worship, the thing that, the only Sunday school story we hear about Jehoshaphat, okay? And, and it is a great story. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And now look at chapter 20, verse 29, okay? So chapter 20, verse 29, it says, And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace 
For his God gave him rest on all sides. God gave him such victory that every enemy was afraid of him. You know, oftentimes as Christians, we don't even realize how afraid of us Satan can be and, his, and the kingdom of darkness can be. And we can be so easily tricked. We can be so easily deceived because we don't understand who we are in Christ. All the young people that went to the C4C conference, they all came home with these books about who they are in Christ. Read those books. It was your homework. Read it. Meditate on that. Understand, according to the Scripture, who you are in Christ. And walk in that, that, that dignity and walk in that authority that Christ has given us. He said, all power has been given unto me. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. So go ye therefore, and you make disciples of all nations. Go with this authority. So Jehoshaphat enjoys this, this great honor, this great authority, and everybody's afraid of him, and he has peace on all sides. And then, boom, for some reason, he decides to make another peace tree of the devil. It makes no sense. It never makes sense in our lives. Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah, it says in verse 31. He was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 25 years. His mother's name was. He walked in the ways of the Father. We read all that already. And then it says the rest of his acts are recorded in Kings. And then look at verse 35. After this, for no reason at all, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel. So he made a peace treaty with dad. Now he made a peace treaty with the son, who was also a very wicked king. And now it tells us plainly, he acted wickedly in so doing. So he allied himself with him. To, this is the story about the ships. To make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made the ships in Ezion Geber. Then Eliezer, the son of Dodavu of Marasah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah. This is the backstory. Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. So the ships were broken, and they could not go to Tarshish. And if you were to read on, you would read about the wickedness that passed on to his sons, and to all of his family. And all of it because he allied himself with Ahab, and he allied himself with the son of Ahab. Other than that, he was a great king who did great things. But the wisdom that we've read that Solomon recorded for us is that one dead fly weighs more than all the honor and all the glory that a person could have in their life. There was something wicked in his alliances that he made with those other people when he did not fully trust in the Lord. You know, the scripture says in James chapter 5, verse 12, go read that too. Above all else, above all else, the most, in other words, James said, the most important thing I want to tell you is something that Jesus told you, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 5. Do not swear by heaven and do not swear by the earth below, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no. All of these people we've looked at, Jehoshaphat, his yes oftentimes became a no. And his no oftentimes became a yes. And he made covenant, or he swore by the powers of this earth. He put his trust in the powers of this earth and of this age instead of it in God. He wasn't a bad king. He's in heaven now. I don't want to talk bad about him. We'll meet him someday when Christ comes back, I'm sure. You know, he's just like you and me. But it could have been better. What I want to say to our young people, 
What do I want to say to our old people? Let's not settle for second best. There's something better that God has for us. Put your trust in the Lord and let your yes be yes. Have you made a commitment to Jesus Christ in your life? If you have made a commitment to Jesus Christ in your life, then let that yes be yes in your life. Why go out and make a covenant with this world? You know, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you know this, this passage well. Read that also. 2 Corinthians 6, okay? Begin with verse 14. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And oftentimes we relate that just to getting married to an unbeliever or something, and there's a relationship to that. But it's not only that. It's being business together, being covenant together, be dependent upon somebody who, in, in some system or some people that are not believers in the Lord. Because when you're yoked together with them, what happens to them is what's going to happen to you. And I'm going to end this with a story about squirrels. Because Jim knows that squirrels are a nuisance, aren't they, Jim? We were talking about that before service. We went to the Grand Canyon. And there's a lot of squirrels at the Grand Canyon. And my dog, Rudy, he's a beautiful Irish setter. He just really likes squirrels, birds, and anything that he can try to get. Okay? He likes to point birds, but he likes to chase everything else. Okay? I talk about him a lot because we like Rudy. And he's a funny character. You could make a whole comic series about, about just Rudy's life. It'd be like Snoopy. Well, we're at the Grand Canyon, and how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon before? Now, would it be dangerous to step over the edge? Oh, yeah. Okay, I don't know how far down it is. Somebody here probably knows the stats. But it's far enough down that you're guaranteed to die if you go over the edge, okay? And you can look it up online. At least 12 people on the average a year die in the Grand Canyon from taking idiotic selfies and things like that. And there are stupid people all over there. Literally, I would almost get sick at my stomach. I have to walk away. I can look out over that. I'm not afraid of heights. But I can't look at what those people are doing. I mean, they're standing in places you should not be standing for a picture. I get it if you're doing it for gold or silver or something, maybe, and you're a professional at this. But just, just people, ladies with high-heeled shoes, why don't they take a little selfie out here? No, it's just crazy. Well, there are these squirrels there. And if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you've seen them, and they're everywhere. And Rudy wants to get a squirrel, okay? But the squirrels, they actually live on the sides of the canyon. They make holes in the sides of the canyon in between rocks and things like this. And it's really pretty cool to watch them. So Frank and I came up with this whole scenario that we made up. It's going to make a great comic book someday. That the squirrels, they're in league with the vultures. Because there's a lot of those condors and vultures there and stuff too. And the vultures bring nuts. This is a made-up story, but it could work. The vultures bring nuts to the squirrels so the squirrels lure dogs like Rudy to their death. And then the vultures get the Rudy's, okay? There are squirrels on the side of the canyon. Can you hear something spiritual in this? Because Rudy is on a leash when he's by the canyon. We don't walk him with a leash very often. He's pretty obedient. But by the canyon, he's on a leash the entire time. Why? Because I guarantee you, he does not understand what it means to go over that edge. And he cannot understand what it means to go over that edge. He's not equipped by God with that kind of brain to understand what it means to go over the edge. What he understands is there's a squirrel, and he's over the edge, so I'm going to go get him. And I promise you that if he had gotten off that leash, Rudy would be dead today. Okay? 100%. Shalene can tell you. She saw it. I'm not just making up some preacher story here. He would be dead today. He wouldn't have broke his, his little 
paw or something. He wouldn't have got some stickers in his fur. He would be dead. And we would not have his body because we would not have been able to get him out of there. Okay? That's, there's, there's a book in the library or the bookstore at the Grand Canyon about dead people in the Grand Canyon. I'm telling you the truth. On the cover of the book, it's got a picture of a skull going like this. And it tells all these stories of people that have fallen into the canyon. So, I mean, this is real. And when I saw that happening, I realized that's, that's exactly what wisdom is. Wisdom, like it or not, is like this leash on our neck. It's a covenant that we have with God. It's for our good, and it's for our blessing. Okay? But if we break covenant with God, we can just go over the edge with the squirrels, and we're dead. It almost happened to Jehoshaphat. And in the end, it did happen. He didn't die, but he didn't get to where he wanted to go. And his life is always going to be remembered as the king who did not arrive. He spent so much time packing his bags, but he never reached his destination. And that's not what God's plan is for us. We hope God's plan is what he has. Leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvinionfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.